0: Welcome to the True Blue Crime Investigates podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. Welcome to my first True Blue Crime Investigates episode after the CrimeCon break. It was great to meet so many great people and talk with so many fans of True Crime. The True Crime community is made up of a lot of amazing people, and I felt so welcomed and supported during my weekend in Orlando. If you have any interest in attending next year's CrimeCon, it's in May in Nashville, and hotels and tickets go fast, so book now and you will not be disappointed. But before we get into this episode, let's cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcasts are up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com, and if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime Investigates. Cryptography is the use of code to relay a hidden message. It's derived from the Greek words cryptos meaning hidden, and graphene, meaning to write. The need for hidden messages can include serious applications such as wartime correspondence about military maneuvers and troop positioning, or could be a simple code used by a school children to pass notes that can't be read by a teacher or parent. The codes can be simple. Replacing letters with numbers or shifting a letter in the alphabet all the way to needing more complex mathematical equations to solve the code. The more complex the code, the greater the difficulty is to break it. During World War II, the Germans used the Enigma machine to send what they believed were encrypted messages regarding military matters. Because the Germans believed the machine was unbreakable, no additional steps were taken to safeguard the code. However, Allied intelligence did break the code and used intercepted messages to help win the war. On the other side of the world, the American military broke parts of the Japanese code, and one intercepted message indicated a target named AF was to be attacked by the Japanese Navy in the near future. American codebreakers believed AF was an island called Midway, and purposely sent out uncoded messages about broken equipment on Midway. When another code was intercepted indicating broken equipment on AF, the Americans were able to launch a surprise counterattack on the Japanese Navy that turned the tide of the war in the Pacific. Meanwhile, members of various Native American tribes in the U.S. were given the task of sending coded messages using their native language as a base for the code. The use of a language other than English, and one that was not well documented within the Japanese military intelligence, allowed secret messages to be safely sent throughout the Pacific theater. Now you may wonder what all this has to do with true crime, and while I don't normally do long introductions on True Blue Crime Investigates, I felt a little history lesson on codebreaking was important for this episode. Today we are going to discuss the murder of a man named Ricky McCormick, and while any death is tragic, it wasn't his manner of death, his social status, or a well-known suspect that made his death intriguing. When Ricky's body was discovered, two pieces of paper were found in his pockets. Each piece of paper contained a long cipher or coded message that 24 years later still remain a mystery even to the FBI. In 2011, the FBI released the coded messages to the public, and 12 years later, they are still unsolved. This is the strange and tragic case of the murder of Ricky McCormick. Ricky McCormick was born on June 14, 1958, and it is said that he spent his childhood battling mental illness and poverty. There were early claims in this case that Ricky wrote encoded messages since he was a child, but his family would later refute that and say Ricky was borderline illiterate and hardly ever wrote more than one or two sentences. A psychologist who treated Ricky as a child stated he had, quote, a brick wall in his mind, end quote. His aunt, someone he confided in throughout his life, said she believed he lived in his own world to escape the realities of the real world. While at school, it was said he often stood away from the playground, staring at nothing for the entire recess, and school officials often called his mother to see if things were okay at home. Ricky was said to have a low IQ and struggled to read and write. But he managed to navigate the st louis public school system until he reached high school as a teenager he dropped out of school and began working a string of low-paying jobs he lived on his small paychecks and some disability money he got for his asthma and some heart issues he was diagnosed with as a child it was said that he started smoking around age 10 and was said to drink almost two dozen cups of coffee or caffeinated beverages a day Neither of these lifelong behaviors could have helped his cardiovascular and respiratory issues, but Ricky managed to traverse life rather unscathed until he turned 34. At 34 years old, the mentally deficient Ricky was found to have had sexual relations with a young girl over the course of three years. The victim was 11 when Ricky first started sexually assaulting her, and by 14 she had given birth to two of his children. Ricky was charged with first degree sexual assault and his public defender would later note that Ricky definitely suffered from some form of mental defect or deficiency. She requested he be given a psychological exam and he was found fit to stand trial. This led him to plead guilty to the crimes and he served 13 months in prison for his crimes. He was released sometime around 1995 and returned to his life of minimal wage employment. So we'll step away from the story here and discuss some things about ricky's childhood here basically we'll get into it later the controversy about this writing and code this became obviously because of the coded messages became kind of a central point of this now i did read a lot of different opinions of people that would state that they believe that ricky might have suffered from some type of schizophrenia and people who are experiencing schizophrenic episodes may write down what looks like gibberish uh, on pieces of paper and in their mind these this is communication to some degree it makes sense to them during the episode but then later it won't make any sense to them however the fact that the family has said that he did write in code at times as a child even if it was just a sentence or two Schizophrenia is usually one of the, a disease that doesn't affect someone until they get to their 20s. So while Ricky may have had some types of mental deficiencies as a child, I find it hard to think that he's gonna be suffering from the schizophrenia from that early of an age and that the schizophrenia then is going to connect with this, these coded messages it is possible that he may have developed in his mind his own form of language or some type of a code. I know I heard my my dad tell me a story about when he was growing up uh, him and his younger brother that he was close to an age had a secret language between the two of them that only they could understand and it wasn't until my dad went off to school uh, as a young child that his brother had to learn to speak in typical English or exclusively, I should say, in, in typical English because my father wasn't a, around to translate for his brother. So it, it is possible that children will sometimes formulate their own, their own language, their own coded messages in their brain. And so it's very possible that Ricky did this as a child and then somehow carried this code th- with him throughout the rest of his life and you know he does get ordered to stand trial and part of that as we've seen many times in the past is the psychological exam and unfortunately i could not find the actual report from the psychological exam i saw different articles that stated that he may have suffered from bipolar he might have been schizophrenic but In this case, in reference to the psych exam, the articles mainly just reference that he was found fit to stand trial. And those types of psychological exams are basically just a check to see if he understands what's going on, if he understands the charges against him, if he understands he can go to prison if he loses his case, and that he can work with his counsel to establish some type of a plea or whatever it might be. So sometimes these psych exams don't get into the nitty gritty of what's going on in this person's brain. They're just basically a, a check on a checklist to say, does he understand what's going on around him? And you know, he's going to make it to uh, over 40 years of age uh, without you know living in group homes or whatever it might be. So it was said that he was at least street smart enough to understand stuff going around him. Now, this mental deficiency, there's a lot of times where somebody with a low IQ or a mental deficiency doesn't mature past a certain age. They don't see themselves as aging past uh, their young teenage years. Uh, When I worked uh, for the police departments, we had a guy that was pretty famous around our city who was mentally handicapped. He was delayed in his learning. And from what we had heard, he thought he was about a 12 or 13 year old kid. And this was well into his fifties and and into his sixties. And as a result, he would ride around and on his bike and he would talk to these prepubescent teens or even kids as, as young as nine or 10 years old. And their parents would always call because here's this fully grown, older, beyond middle-aged man riding a bike talking to young children. And unfortunately, it was, it was a difficult road for us to navigate because he wasn't doing anything wrong per se. And in his mind, he definitely wasn't doing anything wrong. But we could also understand where parents and children could be freaked out by his behavior. And so while I'm not giving him excuses for sexually assaulting an 11-year-old girl, but don't get me wrong, I'm, I i have to believe that he knew what he was doing was wrong at that point, it's not the same as somebody who has a normal functioning IQ and has a normal maturity level within their brain deciding to predate on an 11-year-old. So that all being said, he's going to you know, kind of just, I guess, get through life until he gets sent off to prison and when he's released from prison it's not really going to change much Uh, he's just going to go back to the life that he had before which was this minimal wage uh, employment and and kind of just floating through life and at some point Ricky began working the night shift at an Amoco station south of downtown St. Louis. The gas station was owned and operated by a Palestinian man named Juma Hamdallah. He had taken over the business after the previous owner killed the neighbor with a butcher knife, and then the owner was killed in prison. Juma employed his brother Baha, who went by Bob, to run the store. Bob, however, was not the model employee or brother as he was accused of shooting Juma in 1999. Juma survived and refused to cooperate with police. And during their investigation into the shooting of Juma, St. Louis PD learned that Bob had ties to many gang members and drug trafficking related to the gas station. This is important to the case because in the year before Ricky was killed, he made two strange trips to Orlando, Florida with the second trip being just weeks before his murder. Bob was also known to be an extremely violent person and once shot at another man in front of a police detective. Bob was arrested for this crime but never charged. Nine months later, he got into an argument with another one of his brothers and shot him in the abdomen. Eyewitnesses put Bob at the scene, but once again, another one of his brothers refused to cooperate with police and no charges were brought against him. A few weeks after that incident, Bob attacked a homeless man who was hanging around the gas station and refusing to leave, and he attacked him with a hammer. The man survived a savage beating, and Bob was arrested for second-degree assault. But just before the case was going to court, someone gunned down the victim, killing him and eliminating the only witness to the crime, and once again, Bob escaped justice. A year after the homeless man's murder, on June 15, 1999, Ricky McCormick traveled from St. Louis to Orlando via bus on a one-way ticket. He spent just two days at a hotel in Orlando, and during that time, he and his girlfriend had a high volume of phone calls to people in the area and at least one back to the gas station in St. Louis. And, and so, take a little break here. We've talked about this owner of this gas station. I mean, everything that you see, he shot two of his brothers, he shot at a guy in front of a police detective, and he beat a homeless man almost to death just because the homeless man wouldn't stop hanging around the gas station. And and he determined that he was just going to, as he told other people, quote, take care of the problem, end quote. And I'm pretty sure he had an alibi for when this homeless man was killed because obviously somebody getting killed right before you're going to go to trial everybody's going to be looking at you so i'm pretty sure he had some type of a rock-solid alibi but there was a lot of rumors going around that he had hired somebody to kill this homeless man uh, to prevent him from going uh, doing any prison time for the assault and we mix that into the fact that bob has been linked to gang members and drug trafficking, especially with the involvement in the gas station. And then you've got these trips to Orlando that Ricky is doing. And I did take some drug interdiction classes while I was a police officer. And this is something that you see. And if you watch any of those to catch a smuggler shows or anything like that, short term trips to different destinations uh, you know, if I were to stop a car on the highway and I find out the person drove from Minneapolis to Miami and stayed for a single night and then drove was driving all the way back without really having a good reason for doing it, uh, definitely would raise some suspicions. That's definitely the type of behavior you see with, with drug mules. And it's going to be the same thing here with Ricky taking this bus. Now, he didn't have a car, so he's going to take the bus to Orlando on a one-way ticket. It did not say how he got back, so I don't know if he purchased another ticket while he was in Orlando to ride the bus back, and he was bringing drugs back with him on the bus. I assume that since he didn't have access to a car, he wasn't driving, but everything indicates between the short stay, the high volume of phone calls, the fact he's taking this trip from St. Louis to Orlando via bus, everything is indicative of, of drug trafficking, and some people might wonder why. You know, why not just somehow get the drugs some other way, or purchase the drugs in St. Louis to turn on and sell. And that's because drugs that are in places that are easy to access via, in in this case, uh, Florida, people bringing drugs over the via the ocean, or in the cases of the South them across the border. Because it's a supply and demand issue, there's so much more supply of these drugs in the South that you can purchase them in the South for much cheaper. And then by the time you get them up to St. Louis, Chicago, Minneapolis, uh, some of these more northern cities, the, the price goes up because obviously there's not as much of a supply. So it's an easy way and was an easy way for people to make money was buy drugs cheap and then turn around and sell them for a profit. You just had to have somebody that was willing to transport the drugs. And I'm going to guess that Ricky, with his low IQ and his you know, low socioeconomic status, was pretty easy to convince to do these kinds of things or might have even been threatened to, to carry out these trips. And Ricky's girlfriend would later confirm with police that Ricky was a drug mule and that he went to Florida to get large quantities of cheap drugs to bring back to Bob to sell in St. Louis. And while Ricky had made a couple of these trips before, his trip in June of 1999 was different according to his girlfriend. She said that while Ricky didn't like to talk about the trips, they usually didn't bother him, but this time he seemed distant and afraid when he returned. And that's the thing about especially these types of trips is things can go wrong ricky's probably given money or i should say ricky ricky would have been given money to make this purchase down in, in orlando florida so whoever's financing the trip whoever's giving him money for the ticket and then money to purchase the drugs is expecting these drugs to come back and for them to turn a profit and in the world of drug trafficking and illi- illicit drugs it's not uncommon for deals to go bad and it can be a situation where ricky shows up to do the exchange cash for drugs and the other person doesn't bring any drugs but brings a gun and and robs ricky and now ricky has no cash and no drugs it could be that ricky purchased something that he thought was a certain drug whether it be you know cocaine or meth or something and it turns out to be just flour or sugar or some type of a crystal substance and so ultimately you end up not getting any sellable product and you're out to cash so it's it's very possible that something went wrong on this trip and ricky may have lost whoever was financing this trip a lot of money and did not return with the with the drugs that he was sent down to to bring back and this would make sense if ricky's returning from this trip and he's done it before, and he's never acted weird, but this time when he returns, he's acting distant and afraid. And this fear may have led him to have health issues as he checked himself into two different medical facilities between June 22nd and 25th. It's also possible, and his family and police believe, that he was trying to use the medical facilities as a safe place to stay because he feared for his life. And this does make sense if, if the drug deal went bad down in Orlando, he comes back, He doesn't have either the drugs he was sent down with. He's lost the cash. He's worried that there's going to be retribution for his failure. If he's able to stay in a hospital, it's a much safer environment for him than his house or going to the gas station that he works at that is likely related to this drug trafficking. So he's going to spend the days after he returns from this trip trying to get checked into the hospital, And it works on June 22nd. I think he spends at least a night or two in the hospital, but then gets released. And then he goes back on June 25th. He's denied an overnight stay, but he chose to sleep in the waiting room and left on the morning of June 26th. So this again indicates he's likely just trying to stay off the radar because he did have a place to stay. So it wasn't as if he was homeless. He could have gone back to his place after he was denied the overnight stay at the hospital, but he chose to stay in the waiting room, which you know, if you've ever slept in the waiting room or uh, spent a significant amount of time in a waiting room at a hospital, it is not the place you wanna to be to get good rest. So this indicates even further to me that, that he was doing everything he could to stay away from, from anything associated with his life uh, because he felt his life was in danger. And so then on June 26th, he talked with his girlfriend around 1130 and stated he was on his way to the Amoco gas station to get something to eat. And this is the last confirmed contact with Ricky McCormick. Now, there was somebody at the gas station, I think, claimed that they saw Ricky on June 27th, but I don't put any credit into that sighting just because I believe the gas station's involved in this murder, so... Of course, somebody at the station would say something that would potentially throw off the police investigation, maybe indicating they saw him after they already knew that Ricky was dead. So that would just complicate the, the, the police investigation. So I'm going to believe Ricky's girlfriend saying that she talked to him at 1130 and that he was on his way to the Amco gas station. And then nobody ever sees or hears from Ricky again until his body's discovered. That occurred on June 30 when Ricky's lifeless body was found laying face down in a cornfield about 15 to 20 miles outside of his home in downtown St. Louis. Ricky did not have a car and this was well outside the range of the public transportation he relied upon. His body had been out in the summer heat for at least 4 to 5 days and he was already in a state of decomposition and during an autopsy his manner of death was not able to be determined. Despite the lack of evidence of a homicide, the detectives felt strongly that Ricky did not end up in the field after a natural death. And so there are some people, especially if you go online, that seem to believe that just because somebody shows up 15 to 20 miles away from their house, a person with significant health issues and is not taking care of themselves, that you can't prove that this was a homicide. And I I guess I can agree that you can't prove that it is, but it's one of those things where If Ricky had never been to this area before, doesn't have transportation to get there, and then somehow ends up in of middle of nowhere in a cornfield, it definitely is not normal behavior for him. And it's not something where he likely would have gotten a ride out to the middle of these cornfields and then he just happened to die uh, while out in the cornfield. It, It definitely seemed like he lived his entire life in the cities. So yes, maybe he was trying to escape some stuff in the cities, but... To me, it makes more sense that somebody brought him out there and either dumped him after he was dead or killed him out in the middle of nowhere. And up until this point, the death of Ricky McCormick is just like that of too many lower socioeconomic Americans with mental health issues. In fact, little of much was reported on the strange death of Ricky in the weeks, months, and years following the discovery of his body. But that all changed in 2011 when the FBI released two items of evidence found in Ricky's pockets. Two pieces of paper filled with letters, numbers, and marks were found when Ricky's gene pockets were searched. The messages looked like a simple substitution cipher and were sent to the FBI's Office of Cryptanalysis and Racketeering Records. They landed on the desk of an agent named Dan Olson, who decided to give the code some of his time. Over a decade later, the code was still unsolved, and Agent Olson, now the head of the unit, made the unique decision to turn to the public for help. In 2011, the FBI released copies of the coded notes on the internet for anyone to see and requested any and all help in cracking the codes. And this is an interesting move on the part of the FBI. First off, you know, it was, this was 12 years after Ricky's murder. And so for 12 years, even Ricky's family just kind of chalked it up to his murder was unfortunate, probably involved with this violent gas station owner or somebody he had crossed at some point in his life and the, the police are probably never going to solve this. So the first time the family is hearing about these notes is when the FBI releases these coded messages. And it's not unprecedented. Obviously, the FBI has put out the the zodiac ciphers of which the two longest ciphers one was solved a week after the zodiac sent it out and another was solved during the coronavirus pandemic when some mathematicians had some extra time on their hands and were able to solve the cipher that had eluded the fbi for almost 50 years i think at that point so it's not unheard of that the fbi will put out Uh, help for the public, especially when it comes to stuff like this, this cryptography. And that's really because, you know, there may be somebody out there that recognizes what this code actually means. And we'll get into some of the different theories about the code uh, down the road here. But it's one of those things where it's, they had spent hundreds of hours, maybe thousands of hours in the FBI trying to crack this code. And it gets to be the point where, You start chasing your tail. You're you're doing the same thing over and over again. You're you're approaching it the same way again and again, and eventually you want to get some fresh eyes. Now, in two thousand nine, I believe they brought up the codes at some type of a convention, crypto analysis invention convention or something like that, where they had people in the field try to break the code, and it didn't work so they had shown it to some other people before 2011 but eventually by 2011 they just kind of said let's put it out there for the public i mean what's it going to hurt at this point obviously you know we haven't made any progress on our own so and then while some argue the codes are just gibberish and may have only made sense to ricky during a schizophrenic state dan olson disagrees and says that he sees many telltale signs of an encrypted message and there's a difference between gibberish and code And this is kind of a central part of this case, because if you just look at the notes and they're available online all over the place, if you just look at Ricky McCormick's notes, you know, some people, again, will say they just think it's gibberish. They just think it's something he came up with during a mental health emergency. But. This guy who has spent his entire career looking at different codes, cracking different codes, he's seeing telltale signs of an encrypted message. There's repetition of of letters in positions that may indicate spaces. When you just write gibberish out, it doesn't repeat itself in patterns that are recognizable. So when you see these notes, you will see these recognizable patterns, but the problem is, is they don't know how Ricky made the code in his brain. And so they went back to the family. Again, there was some controversy about the notes being released because the FBI claimed they had been told by the family that Ricky often wrote and spoke in codes as a child, and this backed up their claim that they thought there was likely a legitimate message in the notes. However, Ricky's family claimed they never said anything about the codes to law enforcement and don't believe Ricky had the mental capacity to write out the coded messages. This has led some to believe the notes may have been written by someone else and given to Ricky as part of his drug meal activity. However, critics of this theory wonder why someone would have left the notes in his pocket if they were related to illegal activity. But a counter argument to that is that he may have been killed by someone who didn't care to check his pockets or didn't think the notes were important to destroy. And if we remember back to when Bob needed the homeless man killed, he hired somebody else to kill him. So if this other person, kills Ricky and then disposes the body in the cornfield, one, he may not care to check the pockets of this guy that he killed. And two, if he did and he sees these notes, if they are some type of a coded message from Bob or somebody else to Ricky, they may look at it, just see gibberish and realize, you know, it's not worth taking these notes. So just because they could be somebody else's notes doesn't mean that It's strange that Ricky still had them on him when his body was found. And whoever the author is, the FBI believes that important clues that could point to those responsible for the murders could be contained inside the hidden messages. But as of 2023, only a few people have claimed to have broken the code. And while they have offered some believable options, they are only partial solutions and are not believed to be the actual overall solution to the code. And that's the problem with codes is if you have a, a whole bunch of characters like you do here in this code, you can't just break three or four parts of it using a key that, that you think fits those three or four parts. The key has to fit the entire coded message. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense because if you give this message to somebody else, unless they somehow know to ignore 75, 80% of the coded message and only focus on the parts where the key matches up. You don't really have a, a encrypted message. You just got partial code, and everything else is going to make sense to them. So, while it's a little easier to fit a code key to say twenty percent of the message, nobody's been able to find a key code that works for all one hundred percent of the message. Like even some parts where people believe that it's some form of a a drug shorthand or some type of a abbreviated way for Ricky to remember stuff that fits for, again, maybe 20 to 30 percent of the notes. But then what is the other 70 percent? Why does why does he continue writing that way if it doesn't apply to the entire code? So, again, nobody has actually come up with a full solution that makes sense uh, to the FBI. And the one thing the FBI has said is that they believe the language of the code is English. If you remember back to the beginning of this episode, we talked about how the U.S. military used Native American-speaking radio operators to transmit coded messages during World War II. It wasn't that the code they used was too complex that made it unbreakable. It was that the Japanese didn't understand the base for the code was a different language and dialect, which meant even if they broke the code, it was still gibberish to them. So, and I often think of this when it comes to, if I were to try to decrypt a message sent in the Cyrillic alphabet, something from Eastern Europe or Russia, it's going to be so much more difficult for me because I have to compare the Latin alphabet to the Cyrillic alphabet just to get everything to match up. So it's just another layer of difficulty. And then when you've got different syntax and and different grammar rules for different languages, if you don't know the language of your code, it makes it that much more difficult. Again, which is why it was mainly the Navajo, but there were other tribes whose languages were used during World War II. The Japanese could break the code. They could say, okay, well, in this code, this means that, and that means that. But then when they get done with the code, they've got what looks to them like gibberish because they don't understand that it's a language that isn't English. And according to the FBI, there are four steps to breaking the, any code. The first step is to determine the language. The second step is to determine the system used. And this is a step that has never been accomplished with Ricky's Codes. The system used is essentially the guide to how the original message was encoded. The system can be a simple substitution where one letter is replaced with another letter or number, or it can include mathematical equations, matrixes, or streams to increase the complexity of the code. So. Basically, when you look at a code, you know, a simple code would be something where somebody swaps Known letters. So a equals m b equals n and so on and once you figure out the code You can replace all those letters and eventually you get the original message and again, if you know the language is English eventually simple substitution you'll have this and and this is very common and puzzle books or some of those logic puzzles you see at, at drugstores, or you're gonna fly in an airplane you want to kill some time these are these little substitution codes you figure out where the those are and figure out what is T and H and E and eventually once you plug in those letters you'll find other words and other letters that fill those words and, and within a matter of 10 or 15 minutes you'll probably have your puzzle solved. but if you now maybe assign a number to each of those. So now you say, you know, A is 1, B is 2. But then you say, okay, for every letter, you're going to go plus 7. And then that's going to be your new letter. And it's still a substitution, but eventually you can get so complex in these mathematical equations or putting it into either matrix or a stream that it becomes a, a very messy Uh, solution very quickly, it can be done, but you just have to figure out that system, and that's not something they've been able to do with with these notes. Now, it is possible that one day the coded messages, if they aren't just gibberish, could be translated and could provide investigators with some evidence of who killed Ricky. But until they are solved, we can only look at what was going on for Ricky around the time of his death. Based on his boss's propensity for violence, it's very possible that Ricky met his demise due to Bob's violent temper. Remember, Bob shot at one man, and actually shot two of his brothers, before finally going to prison after shooting and killing a customer outside of a store he owned in Illinois. And while Bob and his lawyer tried to claim the shooting was in self-defense, a jury convicted Bob of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 38 years in prison in 2002. His case was overturned in 2006 when an appeals court ruled his own lawyer failed to call a gunshot residue expert to the stand, and he was granted a retrial. And this is something that just boggles my mind, is somebody can win an appeal, and we've talked about this before, but for inadequate counsel. And I get not everybody can afford their own defense attorney. Sometimes these are, a lot of people get the public defenders that are overworked, have too many cases, and they should be granted the best defense they can. But, you know, they're the ones that are going to trial. You think that they're the ones that would be saying, hey, you know in this case why aren't we why don't we have a gunshot residue expert up there like why, why don't we do this why don't we do that and the fact that the lawyer failed to do that and that grants them a retrial now i get that our justice system is based on the presumption of innocence and that but you know if somebody's found let's say somebody's acquitted like in the oj trial and then the prosecution appeals and says whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second Our prosecutors messed up we should have done x y and z we have double jeopardies that person cannot be retried at that point but it's kind of like okay well after the prosecution puts together an entire case a jury finds this guy guilty and sends him off to prison because of a mistake that his own defense makes he you know gets to get another trial so again it is what it is mistakes are made i get it it just to me it bothers me that inadequate counsel is something that actually does sometimes work on appeal and you have to go through a whole other trial because of a mistake that the own person's defense made. But anyway, in this case, it's gonna work out for Bob because in 2008 at his retrial, the jury acquitted Bob of the murder and believed his story that the gun went off on accident during a struggle and the murder was justified. He walked out of court a free man and now resides in the Cleveland area and police long suspected that he hired a man named Gregory Knox who had ties to the same gangs as Bob during the late 1990s to kill Ricky. Gregory was a suspect of four homicides in 1998 and 1999 that occurred in or around the housing complex Ricky lived in. Confidential informants told police that Gregory had talked about killing a man who worked at a gas station and dumping the body in a cornfield. Despite years of investigation, no direct evidence was found to implicate Gregory for the murder. He would eventually go to prison, but for drugs and weapons charges, not murder. So I believe the most likely scenario is that Ricky went down to Orlando in early June of 1999 to do a drug deal and traffic the drugs back to St. Louis. Something went wrong during the drug deal and Ricky came back and knew he was in trouble. He attempted to buy himself more time by going to hospitals and staying away from the gas station and his residence, but eventually after he returned to the gas station, he ends up getting killed. It's hard to say that if the notes are coded messages, that they will provide enough evidence to arrest somebody for a murder if they're ever solved, but the case is intriguing enough and hopefully for Ricky and his family, someday justice will be served. You can see the notes and even offer submissions for the solutions directly to the FBI at their website, or you can find the notes on any of hundreds of websites and Reddit boards on the internet. To me, the notes look too neat and detailed to be random gibberish, as I've seen doctor prescription notes that are 100 times less legible. For someone who could barely read and write, the letters seem too well written, spaced, and leveled to be the penmanship of somebody suffering from a psychotic episode. And that's really my take is when I'm reading these notes, they're very clear and articulate. The letters are well formed. Everything on there, for the most part, is, is pretty easy to read. Uh, I've seen people in mental health crisis try to write stuff out it's their brain is either working at a a million miles an hour or they're just not able to formulate letters or numbers well so to me it reads much more like somebody who actually has a good grasp and and when you're saying that Ricky could barely write a sentence or two at least his family was saying he could barely write a sentence or two I can't imagine somebody who can barely write a sentence or two under normal conditions could somehow write out these long coded messages as articulate and legible as they are. So again, that makes me think that it's very possible that these were some form of directions, some, some, there is some code out there that if broken, it might explain this drug deal that went on in Orlando. It might be directions for him to get to a place for this this drug deal or something like that but again it's just without these codes being broken without anybody being able to pinpoint what is in these codes if they aren't gibberish and many people believe that they are but if they aren't gibberish if they're ever solved that'll first tell you whether they're from ricky or they're from somebody else and secondly again they might give some information as to what was going on right before ricky was killed but only time will tell if the notes are code and if so, what the code says. But that is it for the strange and tragic case of Ricky McCormick. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.